I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by the new Colour Revolution exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which looks at the way scientific breakthroughs in the Victorian period enabled dramatic changes in the use of colour in fashion, painting and other objects. You can hear one of the exhibition's curators, Charlotte Riberon, a professor of 19th century British literature at the Sorbonne, explaining more about the exhibition and some of the objects and ideas it explores in a special mini-episode in our podcast feed. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is Colin Burrow, a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, and contributor of many pieces to the London Review of Books. His most recent book is Imitating Authors, Plato to Futurity. And with Claire Bucknell, he's presenting a series of close readings podcasts on satire from Erasmus to Muriel Spark, and we'll have more details of how to subscribe to that later. Um, his last appearance on this podcast was in December 2022, when we talked about Roald Dahl, a fairly nasty man who wrote extremely popular books for children. Today, we're discussing George Orwell and whether or not he has certain things in common with Roald Dahl will perhaps come up later. <laughs> but um, Colin wrote about him in a recent issue of the LRB. The piece was a review of three books, Orwell, The New Life by DJ Taylor, George Orwell's Perverse Humanity, Socialism and Free Speech by Glenn Burgess, and Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life by Anna Funder. Hello, Colin, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. Great pleasure to see you, as always. So George Orwell didn't write children's books exactly, though many people first encounter them as children or as teenagers, reading Animal Farm or 1984 at school. And that was certainly my experience, and yours too, I think from what you say in the piece? Yes, 1984, we had to read in 1977, uh, when it still seemed futuristic and horrible. But uh, we were a group of very naughty boys who uh, were set by our teacher to write our own dystopia. And one of my classmates did stick up his hand and say, you know, uh, Orwell seems to have transposed the digits of 1948 to get 1984. Can I do that with my dystopia? Uh, and in 1977, that was quite a good gag, I thought. Although questions, of course, about whether Orwell did name 1984 in that way and so on. But um, we laughed then. We've had some letters, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You always get letters about my pieces and their <laughs> terrible errors and grotesque vulgarities. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, quite right. Too. Yeah, so, well, yeah, 1977, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I just think about 1977 dystopias. I suppose Derek Jarman's Jubilee was a sort of dystopia of 1977. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Thatcher on the horizon was yeah. the ultimate dystopia then, actually. But And you say in the piece that it isn't hard to see why peak Orwell might hit around at the age of 17. Could you elaborate on that? What is it about Orwell that appeals so much to 17-year-olds? There are two qualities in Orwell which would appeal particularly to teenagers, I think. One is the um, absolute directness of his style. He likes short words, he doesn't like Latinisms, and he's quite fond of slightly hectoring adverbs, notably, obviously, which is a great favourite of his. And so when you read him, you really feel as though you've got a person standing perhaps a little bit too close to you, telling you the truth about things. And that stylistic clarity goes along with, I think, a kind of intellectual simplicity and that's not always a vice, actually. I mean, he's someone who, who just saw things very clearly and had very strong feelings about the world around him. And he wrote very directly about the way he saw the world. And I think that kind of writing, when you're 16, 17, makes you realise the point of writing. Uh, and that's 
an amazing thing to do, actually. And I certainly read, I think, almost all of all well apart from the essays in my teens. And I thought, you know, this is great. This is this is the stuff. Uh, and even bits of Orwell that now look really quite creaky, like Keep the Aspidistra Flying, which is a very heavy-handed book, really. Then I thought, you know, this is what it's like to be the aspirant artist or poet and how wonderful it would be to kick away all your social foundations in the way in which Gordon Comstock does in that novel. And, and now I look at it and I think... Yeah, this is this is basically sticking the romantic artist into the sociological atmosphere of Zola, plus a little bit of gissing in the background and throwing in a few 1930s bedsit milieu as well. And it's not very good. But then, you know, I thought it was great. And you didn't necessarily have those references to make to it then? I hadn't... Re- <laughs> hadn't read a lot of Zola in those days. <laughs> you know, Kafka, yeah, uh, but but not Zola. <laughs> and the question of, of the essays, I mean, the, the complete works that came out in 1998 and Ian Hamilton reviewed it in the NRB and he made quite a lot of how enormous it was. It was 20 volumes and he went into how you know, they were two foot six and how much they weighed and how many pages there were and including his essay about the, the miseries of, of book reviewing. But also in that piece... Um, Ian Hamilton tried to imagine what Orwell would have been like if he'd lived. And so this was in 1998. And he asked, would Orwell at 95 have been a Blairite? And this question, once it crops up, releases a bombardment of sub-questions. Would Orwell have been a Gatesgalite? Would he have edited Encounter? What would he have said about Vietnam, about Kennedy, about 1968? What would he say now about Bill Clinton? And on a lower level still, would he have stopped smoking, bought a computer and written essays on the X-Files? <laughs> so unanswerable <laughs> questions that but you in your piece you try a different almost the opposite really thought experiment which is what would we mean by the adjective Orwellian would we even have the, an adjective Orwellian if he had died of the bullet that he caught in Spain in 1937 yeah and I think we wouldn't have had the uh, adjective Orwellian if that had happened or if we did have it it would mean something very different it would mean drab interiors and um, counting up the pence in order to buy a pint of very bad beer, which is really what he was writing about chiefly in the, in the, in the late 1930s. So I think if he'd been terminated then, of course, the two main things we would have lost are the books that everyone knows him for, which is Animal Farm in 1984. And without those two books, I think he he would look like a very different author. And those two last books are the ones that one would put pressure on or look at if one was wanting to answer Ian Hamilton's unanswerable question about what he would be like now. Because they are the product, I suppose, of Orwell, who described himself as a socialist, just losing any confidence in societies which attempted large-scale control of their citizens. And, I mean, the reason why they're so celebrated is because they are politically ambidextrous in that people on the left can say these are attacks on how left-wing politics historically has just taken wrong turnings. People on the right can say these are attacks on where left-wing politics inevitably takes you. And because of that reception history, uh, you can see how difficult it would be to answer the question of whether Eric Blair would have been a Blairite if he'd lived on. And I don't know, there's a little bit of me, actually, that that, um, wonders whether the 90-something-year-old might have been at least a cultural Tory. There's an awful lot in even the early fiction of nostalgic hostility to modern planning developments there is a sort of nostalgic love of the English countryside and that comes through in 1984 as well where Julia and Winston Smith go off and escape from Big Brother supposedly into very much 
a picture postcard English pastoral woodland landscape with fish in the ponds and uh, birds singing in the trees. And there, there is a sort of, there's a slightly John Major quality to some of that, actually. You know, the idea that England consists of people playing cricket and sitting on the village green drinking warm beer. And I don't know whether that strand of Orwell would have become the dominant strand of Orwell. I genuinely don't know. But it might have done. Yeah, and he wrote about that idea of Englishness, isn't he? I mean, that old maid's bicycling to Holy Communion through the morning mist and so on, which, I mean, again, it gets used by different people in different ways, but how, and obviously there was a satirical in, intent in his writing that, but he also, I mean, there's a certain fondness, is it? Well, I mean, you can see him sort of falling for that idea of Englishness while he's satirising it. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit in towards the end of Homage to Catalonia, which I think actually is, in my view, is one of his books that stands up best, actually, to rereading. But there's a final section where he describes the English countryside and then says, and then the bombs are going to drop on it. And and that's a very Orwellian moment because it does combine nostalgia and a slight sense of tongue-in-cheek satire with a violent desire to destroy. And that that combination of affection and violence in his attitudes to England, towards family life, towards his own parents and lovers, very strong component in Orwell. And so the nostalgia is a sort of exploding nostalgia. It's a kind of, here's a vision and it's going to be destroyed. And that happens also, of course, in 1984, where the idyls with Julia are little pockets uh, within, uh, well, Orwellian nightmare, as we would call it now. <laughs> I mean, you say in the piece that he, he was far better at describing what he didn't like about the world than at articulating what he wanted it to become. I mean, it sounds like that's part of what you're describing now. Yes. I mean, he he ain't no utopian. And I have sympathy with him for being better at describing what he doesn't like than what he does like, because, you know, that's what literary critics do as well. Because, you know, if we, if we could create what we liked, we wouldn't be literary critics. We'd be, we'd be writing books. And so it's not, again, uh, a terrible moral failing, but it is what his talent finally was. And I think it's got to do with the the relative lack of detail and content in his ways of thinking about politics and society. And when he writes about socialism in The Road to Wigan Pier, for example, he almost exclusively gives a negative portrait of its present practical manifestations. He aligns it with the attitudes, really, of H.G. Wells, scientism, progressivism, a belief in technology and a shiny metallic futurity. Uh, and he clearly doesn't like that. He's got that element of a Hausman-like nostalgia for a world even before the First World War. Um, and so his negativity about socialism derives from his sense that things around him are going wrong. And he's not very good, actually, about thinking about political representation or, for example, about how you might decolonize the empire, which was one of his deep and principled convictions right through his life, that, that, you know, Britain should get out of the empire. But, you know, the hows and the whys, he's just not interested in. And again, you know, that's why for young people, he's fantastic because he's, he says all the right things and gets you feeling the right thoughts. But he, for older people, when you go, well, actually, you know, I, I've seen people trying to do these things and it hasn't worked very well. So tell me, <laughs> give me some method, you know, that sort of question, I don't think he stands up to very well. Um, and so the negativity is part of what makes him appeal to young people. And also, I think one of his big intellectual limitations if you look at him sort of long term throughout your life. I mean, I suppose you could say that his his dystopias, well, Animal Farm's not exactly a dystopia, but Animal Farm and 1984, if they partly show what goes wrong if you try and plan your utopia, then that would be an argument for why actually his approach of pointing out what's wrong with things rather than trying to make them better. Because if you try to make them better, they all go wrong. But then again... That doesn't, doesn't necessarily yeah. get you anywhere yeah, because yeah. it's... No, all... no, yeah. 
the pathway to improvement is through um, destruction and, as far as he was concerned, totalitarianism. And, uh, and I think through the, the late 30s and right through the war and into the 40s, his preoccupation was totalitarianism. And, and, you know, in that period, that was obviously something that one should be focusing on. And representing the horrors of totalitarianism was a socially and politically valuable exercise. But his horror at it didn't go along with um, constructive alternative thinking to the extent that one might hope. And I think in a way, his horror at totalitarianism was linked to the sort of root of violence in his imagination. So there's this passage in Coming Up for Air where the hero George Bowling is reminiscing about going to a speech by a a lecture by a communist and he imagines what's going on in the speaker's head while he's in the audience and he says what he's seeing is something quite different it's a picture of himself smashing people's faces in with a spanner fascist faces of course i know that's what he was seeing it was what i saw myself for the second or two that i was inside him smash right in the middle the bones cave in like an eggshell and what was a face a minute ago is just a great big blob of strawberry jam i don't think ever has an english high tea been presented in such a violent manner you know you've got the eggs you've virtually got the toast soldiers to dip into the eggshell you've got the strawberry jam on the side and in the middle of it is a spanner going into someone's face and that is very orwell you know it is politics as violent destruction with that deep english assumption that really finally everything that's red and sticky is strawberry jam that you might have for tea you know orwell's view of politics in the late 30s 40s was rooted in his sort of horrified attraction for violence and in homage to catalonia when he describes his motivations for going to spain his desire was to kill fascists and I mean, the best bits of Homage to Catalonia are, are, I think, where he comes face to face with sad, bedraggled fascists in in the sort of ramparts and fortifications that they're trying to defend uh, and realises that they're just bedraggled little young men, a bit like him. But, you know, there there is that sense of destruction as being the main aspect under which Orwell is viewing the world in that period and it's a product as much of his period and his experiences as it is of his psychology but I think there is also a root sort of interest in violence and destruction in his in his writing very very apparent in 1984 of course which is you know finally grounded not so much on controlling people's minds but actual physical terror of having you know rats gnawing out your face and um, those other horrors of room 101. How much was his opposition to the British Empire rooted in his experiences as a policeman in Burma as a young man in the 20s? His accounts of the matter um, would suggest that it was very much rooted in that and I think one of the the best of his early essays um, almost I think his first sort of big essay um it's about shooting an elephant which is describing the experiences of a of a colonial policeman who's who's suddenly the person in charge when there's a mad elephant on the rampage and he has to shoot it and it it conveys through the encounter with the elephant the the sort of horror really of being a very young inexperienced man with no sense of what the world is suddenly being confronted with a riot and a raging beast and you're the one in charge and I think through that episode he does manage to convey the um, the sort of degree of self-deception that's involved in controlling a colony through the agency of just young scared people and so I I think probably that experience was a foundational one for him. What you 
don't really get in the later writings is a sense that he moved on from a conviction that Britain shouldn't have an empire. Um, I don't think that his thinking about racial politics, for example, was ever particularly sophisticated. And again, that's a generational feature of, of his writing. And when um, he wrote about basically his experiences in Burma in Burmese days, the, there's a crudity on both sides, I think. I mean, he, he does the standard representation of the snobbish, self-important, gin-drinking uh, expats in the club, and he does a rather similar representation of Burmese subject peoples. Um, and he, in that, he, he conveys a sense of the horror of colonialism, but he does it in a very crudely drawn manner and he does it also through the figure of the central character who's another one of these Orwellian people who um, is in a situation which he hates where he hates as it were on both sides he hates the people in the club uh, he is desperately in love with um, a young woman who comes in from, from the outside and then becomes disillusioned with her and then becomes a sort of sad um drunken outcast and that that preoccupation with the sad drunken outcast i think in in burmese days stops it being a novel that allows colonialism to explode from the inside whereas in in the essay on shooting an elephant i think you do get a sense actually of, of the colonial enterprise exploding from the inside really describing how um, being there, doing it, is impossible and terrifying and wrong. And using using animals as <laughs> as allegories, the allegorical force of animal stories. Because, of course, the first edition of Animal Farm was subtitled A Fairy Story. I think that was soon dropped. But that um, question that you talked about at the beginning, about the sort of directness of his writing, and the, the extent to which that shades into a kind of prescriptiveness, Colm Tabin once wrote a, a very funny throwaway, really short piece on the LRB blog, but it began about Animal Farm, in which he said that I, from an early age I've missed the point of things. I noticed this first when the entire class at school seemed to understand that Animal Farm was about something other than animals. I alone sat there believing otherwise. I simply couldn't see who or what the book was about, if not about farm animals. I had enjoyed it for that, <laughs> which, is, which is a very good joke, so especially about Animal Farm, because... It's so, if, I mean, in terms of points to be missed, it's very, very hard to miss the point of Animal Farm. And that somehow that gets something about almost sort of the coercive nature of that allegory that a lot of fairy stories or animal fables are sort of quite open to, I mean, you can take morals from them or not as you wish, but it's very hard to avoid the moral of Animal Farm. I mean, is there something about always writing that sort of resists a broader readings, openness to different kinds of interpretation? Well, first of all, I, th I think that anecdote reflects extremely well on Colm Tobin. I mean, you really have to love fiction in order not to not to see that Animal Farm is an is allegory farm. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, th I think that I suppose what I was suggesting in in talking about or Orwell's essay about shooting the elephant is that. I think his best writing is actually the essays. And I think the fiction on the whole is trying to be essays and it won't let you go into another world and just go off and see what happens in it. There is there is a nudge and a push. And I think that's that's why partly why he's so successful, because, you know, you can't miss it, can you? Um, but it's also why, well, it, it's also one of the boundaries around his talent that, you know, I think he never would have broken out of, actually. Um, and it, it's there in the early fiction. I mean, A Clergyman's Daughter is really not a very good book at all. It 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 tries to make a fiction out of Orwell's life, 
by um being in the first person of a female character who is who is a clergyman's daughter but the experiences it relates are basically all experiences that Orwell himself had you know she goes hot picking in Kent once she's lost her memory um conveniently you know sort of broken the the fictional reality that he's painstakingly created he goes hot picking in Kent which Orwell did in order in order to um see what life was like on the edge uh she teaches in a very very bad private school which Orwell himself did and with the account of the hot picking Kent, you know absolutely that this is an ethnographical study of poverty. Uh, it's very sharply observed, and it's a really good essay, but a novel it's not. Um, and the passage set in the school is entirely focused on really on the avariciousness of the headmistress and almost not at all on the lives of the children or the, the the opportunities for imaginative escape that that just for a moment open up in Dorothy's teaching of those children, and so it, it again is a is a um, a propaganda piece saying we don't want bad private schools, and I don't think that any of his fiction really does what I want fiction to do, which is to take me off somewhere else where I can make up my own mind and I might get lost. He doesn't like to let his readers get lost. And and that, I think, is a, a weakness of him as a fiction writer. It goes along with his curious relationship, I suppose, to the English to English language reforms that were going on around him. I mean, he was he knew William Empson quite well and and fancied Empson's wife um and Empson's gone down in history as ambiguity Empson and a literary critic who's obsessively concerned with the multiplicities of the English language but Empson was also through his friendship with his supervisor I.A. Richards associated with the basic English movement which was exactly the opposite of ambiguous English. It was designed to create a clear, simple vocabulary in which you could state any truths in a very straightforward way. And in 1984, um, Orwell, I think, basically puts Empson into the novel through the figure of Syme, who is the, the sort of slightly mad philologist who's working on Newspeak, which is supposed to restrict the opportunities for political dissent. But he, uh, he, he Orwell himself, was very interested in writing in such a way that there could be no possible ambiguity about what he was saying and and that forceful directness is great but again it's a limiting factor when it comes to writing novels i think but i suppose one of the other things that column's anecdote shows is it is always possible to read against the way that the author wants you to i mean that's one of the things that samuel richardson when he was rewriting pamela because he felt it had been misread and misinterpreted so he tried to rewrite it in such a way that people wouldn't misread it and then and one of the things that Fielding's Shamala showed although you didn't really need him to do it was that you can't that texts I mean especially as you said the kind of novels you can get lost in that they they do get away from their authors and get read in ways that they didn't want them to be and in a way that the kind of play you can't however plain and straightforward and simple and unambiguous you try to make your language so it's always ambiguities are always going to slip in or slip through yeah that that's true but in the case of Orwell's last two novels Animal Farm and 1984 um the ambiguities are sort of not ambiguities I mean that's to say uh you could take Animal Farm just straightforwardly as an, as an attack on Stalinism, or you could take it as a much wider attack on attempts to revolutionise society. And those two interpretations it's it's open to, uh, and they're politically very, very distinct. But the thing you couldn't really do is say... Uh, finally, that Colm Tobin was right, that it was really about um, 
animals. Although actually, I mean, the, the best bits of it, I think, are um, the bits with the horses and and Boxer, uh, where you do actually feel that there's an alternative world um, uh, opening up around poor Boxer and his his naive willingness to believe what the pigs are telling him and 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 that has a genuine fictive charm but i think i think it you know with the late novels it's it's high level uncertainty as to what this is saying about the world that it's offering rather than um the sort of rapturous intimacies of of not quite knowing how to take a particular character's behavior which is you know one of the things one might look to a novel for I remember as a teenager being very, feeling very sad about when Boxer gets sent off. To, he does get sent to the knackers, doesn't he? he does, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Exactly, yeah, exactly. and it is an awful, awful mm. scene. It's yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. as but partly because it's a horse, there's something that it's sort of Boxer's horsiness is what makes that sad almost. I mean, maybe that sounds like a terrible thing. They're incredibly English. Oh, we'll think of the animals. But I'm reminded of my grandfather when the horses from his father's shop got taken away to pull cannons in the first world war and he felt very sad about yeah. that in a way that there is something about a horse that does does get through to you and i think i think clearly you know i don't know what all experience actually with horses was but uh, he does he does convey the um humanity of horses i think in that scene and i'll i'll give him that <laughs> and in the extent to which ideas such as double well, I'm just they're so familiar. I'm just about to get it wrong. If it's double think or double speak, or maybe it's both of them, and Big Brother and Room One Hundred One, and these ideas, or is it Room One Hundred and One? These ideas which have permeated the culture to such an extent. If Nineteen Eighty Four were a better novel, perhaps those ideas wouldn't have become so ubiquitous as as shorthand for the things they're shorthand for. Yeah, and I think it's almost. Uh... <laughs> Um, it's not invariably true, but I, th I think it tends to be those sharp-edged, clear creations that enter public consciousness from fiction. Um, and it's particularly true, I suppose, of authors who to whom adjectives get a, a, attached. So, you know, we have a, a, an adjective Dickensian, and that is usually used of a very small subset of Dickens's writing to do with the creation of of characters with very obvious characteristics that isn't really what Dickens is about but it's what has become Dickensian and I think uh, or Orwell has managed to create the Orwellian by a rather similar means he he never created actually a single vivid human being with distinctive characteristics i think i could say that with absolute certainty but what he did create were these extraordinarily clear-edged uh images of horror to which his name i think rightly is is attached because nobody else invented room 101 or 101 or whatever it is and i, d I don't think I mean, there are at least two TV series named after bits of Orwell, aren't there? And I can't think of any other English writer of whom one could say that. And that is a, an extraordinarily, an extraordinary skill and, a, and an amazing thing to have achieved. But it is the product of actually being able to pare things down to an absolute minimum. And so Orwell was a... Well, maybe I'm about to say this, maybe it's not quite fair to say that it was a great moralizer, but he... He's certainly popular with moralizers, and like like many moralizers in his private life, he seems to have been quite unpleasant. Yes and no. Um, the accounts of Orwell um, by his contemporaries make him sound extraordinarily self-obsessed in a way that people who want to obliterate part of their own identity are self-obsessed uh, there's, there's an extraordinary anecdote by um anthony powell um about a time when orwell visited powell in his flat i think and powell had just had a baby and powell went out of the room for some reason left orwell with the baby came back in um orwell was sort of staring at the wall 
uh, and Pal noticed that that um, his baby was holding an enormous clasp knife, which Orwell had clearly given to the baby. And he, and and you know, Pal gives this wonderful account of this totally weird episode where he tries to think, well, what's going on? Is Orwell Orwell's genuinely trying to be nice to this child by giving it this clasp knife, which was, I think, you know closed rather than open so the child wasn't going to hurt himself um and then by staring at the wall when pal came back in wanted to deny that he'd been playing with the child or or what you know and and i think that story does convey the combination of um of sort of vagueness and uh irresponsibility that comes through very often in his dealings with other people and it is a story, of course, about one of his friendships with a man and a fellow Etonian. And I think with those sorts of people, Orwell was perhaps rather different from how he was with women. Yeah, because some of the stories about his um, relationships with women and with his wives. So, I mean, the story of his first wife's death is quite horrible. It's a truly awful tale. Um, and, I mean, in the um, 21st century, a number of letters from his wife, his first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, have come to light. Um, and they're wonderful letters, and they're full of vitality and fun and vividness, and mischief as well. And she was clearly a remarkable person. And they, at the start of their marriage, were living in this sort of dreadful hovel, really, somewhere in Hertfordshire, I think, near near Baldock. And it was straightforwardly miserable with a tin roof and no heating. And Orwell was, I, th I think, both had no money and sort of wanted to have no money as a sort of point of principle. And so the poverty was both enforced and, and necessary. And they then, very soon after getting married, they go off to Spain, uh, where Orwell's fighting and Eileen is working in the offices of the POUN. And Orwell then, of course, is shot. It is a very 1930s marriage where the man is driving it along and politics are shaping the whole structure of the marriage. And then... Um, Eileen developed uterine cancer and Orwell was working as a foreign correspondent in Paris at the time and Eileen had an operation which in the days before the National Health Service she had to pay for and she opted to have a, the operation which was a hysterectomy done in Newcastle rather than in London because it was cheaper there and she wrote to Orwell saying that she didn't think she was worth the money. And and you do sort of wonder about a relationship in which a woman can ask a man if she's worth the money for an operation which is potentially going to save her life. It didn't save her life. She died on the operating table. And one of her, well, her last letter is, it was written literally as she was going under and it, and you can see the handwriting um, disintegrate and she never, never came to. And Orwell just wasn't there. Um, and, you know, how much blame do you attach to him for that? Um, I would say the amount of blame one should attach to him for that should be directly proportional to the extent to which it's part of a general pattern of behaviour. And I would see it as very much part of a general pattern of behaviour, which is a tendency to cut himself off from other human beings and to present himself as being um, isolated and solitary and the only person with real political commitment. And going out of the country at the point where his wife was that ill, um, I think, is difficult to excuse. It's even perhaps more difficult to excuse the affairs and attempted affairs that he had while Eileen was in various ways incapacitated either by grief or illness. So when her brother was killed in the Normandy landings, for example, Orwell was 
off with another woman. Um, you know, can one like that? No. Um, is it is it Orwellian behaviour? In my view of the Orwellian, it, it, it radically is, actually, because you read um, Keep the Aspidistra Flying and that novel represents marriage as succumbing to social pressures around you. It doesn't represent it as wanting to be with someone. It represents marriage as a sort of necessary concomitant to ferocious and violent sexual appetites rather than a desire to be with another person. So I would see his behaviour in relation to Eileen as being a manifestation of what Orwell actually was like. And that idea of being the only one with real political commitment is a paradoxical idea, isn't it? Because it, the whole point about politics is that it's a, it has to be a collective endeavour. So to have a nice sense of yourself as the only one with political commitment is, is actually showing a sort of a radical lack of genuine political commitment. Because if there is no sense of the collective, how do you have any real sense of politics? Sometimes that may be connected to his, um, the destructiveness and the negativity and rather than any ideas for how to build anything different. Yeah, I mean, from his descriptions of um, the typical socialist, uh, the sort of sandal-wearing vegetarian uh, caricature that he presents for, at an, in a number of places in his essays and in his fiction, you can sort of imagine what Orwell would have been like at a political meeting. You know, he would have been watching these other people with whom he notionally shared a cause and, and feeling himself separate from them. And I think if you step back from him as a person and you think about him as a as a sort of manifestation of larger literary currents his political stance goes along with where he is in a larger literary history that's to say he is profoundly influenced by the notion that an artist should be separate from everything else around him and the male pronoun is very much i think one that orwell would have endorsed and that goes along with living with your parents but hating living with your parents separating yourself off from from other people and you combine that basically romantic view of the artist with the spirit of the late 30s early 40s and the sociological vision that Orwell was trying to bring to his journalism you really get Orwell you know his his politics comes from being the participant observer who embeds himself in circumstances with which he has no connection, having previously separated himself, like a romantic artist, from everybody who is close to him. And that is, I think, the real core of Orwell. I think it's it's sort of why he can't write fiction. And I think it's also why he is not someone whom I would see as being likely to be a, a long-term collectivist in his political thinking because the mass the group of people out there is something that he's always wanting to disconnect himself from and the, the notorious i suppose it is notorious the list that he he wrote of people he thought might be communist which he gave to the foreign office or to the department of the foreign office i mean is that connected to this sense of himself in this way or i mean why why did he do that why did he hand over this list I find it very strange, and I think, um, well, his those who would defend him in doing that would say all he was doing in, in compiling that list was putting together a list of people who ought not to be asked to write propaganda against the Soviet Union. So he wasn't shopping people in a McCarthyite way. He was, he was just sort of, as it were, um, denying them a writing opportunity. And that may be fair. I don't, I don't know. The fact that he sort of could compile such a list is an indicator of the extent to which his genuine concern about totalitarianism and the totalitarianism, as he saw it as the Soviet Union, how, how deep that went with him. And the other sort of benevolent interpretation of that 
act would be that it comes from you know just fear that there are communist infiltrators in England who m might be instrumental in turning a democracy into a totalitarian state you know that that's that's another possible explanation of it but i find it sort of radically mystifying really given how much emphasis Orwell placed in in all his early writings particularly up until the mid 40s on on the idea of decency and you know people who knew him talk about him as a, a, a sort of morally decent person because it's it, i i can't see how informing a government department of a list of communist sympathizers is compatible with that basic notion of being decent some of them were people he knew i suppose the other extenuating circumstance though is that um you know there were communist spies and in spain he and eileen had both almost been killed partly as a result of Russian spies infiltrating the organizations that they were a, a part of there so you know one one can't one shouldn't moralize with the um clinical eyes of hindsight about someone who'd had um had the experiences he'd had but it does to me look very very much like a political betrayal yeah and a gesture towards I mean, this is an exaggeration, but it is a gesture towards a kind of totalitarian behaviour. If you're informing the state on other writers, that seems to be a step towards totalitarianism. A very, very, admittedly, an incredibly small step, but as much as it was a, you know, putting up a barrier. To it. Well, small, yes, but actually, you know, what is what is totalitarianism in 1984? Um, the main thing it is is interpersonal treachery. Um, and that's, you know, there are obviously the telescreens on the on the walls that are looking at people, but really the fine grain of totalitarianism, according to Orwell, is actually shopping your mates. And he did that. Um, it, hard not to see some conflict there, yeah. Maybe that's a bit of a mean place to finish, but maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's okay. Um, Orwell didn't make it into the, the final list of people that you and Claire will be considering in your your series on satire but maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of those who did well it's a great historical sweep through mostly english satire we start with erasmus's praise of folly in which i memorably horrify my co-presenter claire bucknell by producing a fool's cap from underneath my desk uh spoilers she was genuinely surprised by that as in some ways was i um and we we're working our way forward in time so we got one on ben johnson's full pony which is already in the can which was terrific i thought and we're just about to record one on the earl of rochester and all his filthy doings and we're going to go right up to the 20th century. So there's going to be one on war, but not on Orwell. And and I think we will mention Orwell as a different kind of satirist from war, uh, working around the same time. And we're going to end up with Muriel Spark. And along the way, ooh, Pope, Jane Austen, you know, um, a pretty broad cross-section of English satirical writing and lots of questions about how satire relates generally to literature that's to say you know satire very often presents generalized types of recognizable individuals but retreats from actual naming of people and we talk about how that may relate to the way in which fiction more generally operates on its readers so it's it's great fun i mean claire's wonderful to work with when we're we're having a lovely time and they'll be fantastic satirical mean cruel rude funny all that stuff great yeah and i would say that in some of the i mean austin and spark examples of it is possible to write satirically while also writing fiction that satisfies your expectations of of good fiction yeah and i think one thing satire does is to make manifest the customs of a particular culture and that's partly why it tends to come to the fore in periods of big social or political change because people start noticing new customs and they become observable 
And that in turn means that the division between satire as a sort of narrowly conceived genre and mischievous fiction that draws attention to human mannerisms, that distinction is a very, very fine shifting line. And Jane Austen and Muriel Spark in particular are on the the fictional end of of that divide, but I think there's still a lot to be gained by thinking of them as satirists. And one of, one of the things we were very conscious of in putting together our list of subjects was that most satirists typically are male. Most of the more savage satirists um, certainly are male. Uh, and because Swift famously, well, famously, soon to be famously missing, <laughs> internally famously missing from your list of uh, of people you talk about. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we 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 mentioned Swift by way of comparison uh, um, re- repeatedly, but um, he he didn't make the final cut. We we could do we could do more, Tom. We could do more. There's such a rich field out there. Series two, the return of satire. <laughs> Very good. You can listen to Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell's series on satire next year, along with all the other LRB Close Reading series, by subscribing to the Close Readings podcast, if you don't already. There are links for that in the description. Or, if you'd also like to receive all the books under discussion and have access to online seminars with Colin, Claire and special guests, including Lucy Preble and Catherine Rundle, you can sign up for Close Readings Plus at lrb.me forward slash plus. There are limited places available, so we'd advise signing up sooner rather than later. As part of the package, you will also get access to the full Close Readings audio subscription until the end of 2024, so you can not only listen to the series on satire, but all our series, past and new. And that will include our other two series starting next year, Human Conditions with Adam Schatz, Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra and Brent Hayes-Edwards, looking at revolutionary thought of the 20th century, and Among the Ancients 2, with Emily Wilson and me, Thomas Jones, loosely themed this time around truth and lies, and we'll be looking at a dozen writers from Hesiod and Aesop to Juvenal and Marcus Aurelius. You can sign up to both of those as well right now at lrb.me forward slash plus, and there's a link for everything in the description. This episode was produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.